We're talking about really large pieces of policy, major transfers of wealth, significant reconfiguration of the, the global energy system. And I think that calls for greater transparency, in part because nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. There's there's a lot of uncertainty. And, and I think that's something that that we have to meet head on. Hello and welcome back to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. For our first episode of 2023, Dr. Joe DeCarlis joins my colleague, Ben Cahill, to discuss his priorities for the EIA this year. Joe was confirmed as administrator of the U.S. Information Administration in March of 2022, following his time as a professor in the Department of Civil Construction and Environmental Engineering at NC State. He and Ben talk about some of the changes that Joe sees coming for 2023, as well as some of the mandates and roles that EIA plays in helping people understand the energy sector. I'll turn it over to Ben now. All right, Joe DeCarlos, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome to the Energy 360 podcast. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I wonder if you could just start by introducing yourself briefly. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at EIA. Sure. So uh, I have a background in uh, physics undergrad. And then as I was doing my undergraduate degree, I, I got pretty interested in energy issues. And I was trying to decide where to go for grad school. And I landed at Carnegie Mellon which has a program called Engineering and Public Policy. So that's where I ended up going. I really enjoyed the program. And the idea of the program is that there's many policy issues, and energy is definitely one of those where the technical details matter, that it's it's really hard to formulate intelligent energy policy if you, if you don't understand um, the technical details. And so I worked there with David Keith. He was my advisor. We looked at the economics of large-scale wind power, from grad school, I went to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, where I was an environmental scientist, and I got involved in energy systems modeling. I was at EPA for three and a half years and then moved over to NC State, where uh, I became a professor and continued building an energy research program focused largely on energy systems analysis. A big part of my focus there was on building open source models and finding ways to better characterize uncertainty and future projections. And then from there, I was uh, tapped by the Biden administration to lead the Energy Information Administration. And I've been in that role for about eight months. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, that combination of uh, engineering and public policy seems like it, it served you well and set you on the right path uh, to arrive at this role eventually. It's really interesting. Let me ask you a broad question. How do you think about the mission of the EIA and especially about the, the value of the agency within the global energy system? When you think about what EIA's strategic importance is, how do you think about where it fits alongside the rest of government, private sector, or other international energy agencies like the IEA, for example? What makes EIA unique and what value does it deliver? Sure. So I guess when I think about these kinds of questions, I go back to the legislation which created the Energy Information Administration in its current form, and, and that's the Energy Organization Act of 1977. And I think some of the language in that act is pretty instructive. So what they say is that the administrator shall be responsible for carrying out a central, comprehensive, and unified energy data and information program and we're supposed to collect, evaluate, assemble, and analyze uh, data and information. 
And they make it clear that they want us to cover energy resources and reserves, energy production, demands, technology, basically any information that's relevant to ensuring we have adequate energy resources to meet future energy demands. And there's also language in there indicating that we need to be able to address the near term as well as the long term. And that's exactly what we try and do at EIA. So within the agency, we have an Office of Energy Statistics, and they're responsible for conducting surveys, analyzing the data, and making it all publicly available. We have dozens of surveys that are out in the field. And then we have our Office of Energy Analysis that's responsible for providing both short and long-term analysis on a wide variety of energy topics. And I think there's a couple of features of EIA that that are unique and, and are detailed in this piece of legislation. One is that we are vested with the authority to collect energy data on behalf of the federal government. And that, that is a unique authority. So we can go into industry and request specific kinds of information and they have to respond to us. Now, there are limits on that. We have to go through the Office of Management and Budget to make sure we're not placing undue burden on industry. But that that authority to collect data is extremely important. So there's a lot of data that we collect that would be impossible to get otherwise. And the second thing that's very clear in that, that legislation is that the EIA is supposed to operate independently of the broader Department of Energy. It effectively says that the administrator is not required to obtain approval from any other officer or employee within the department in connection with our collection and analysis of data. So I think that puts EIA within a relatively uh, unique position within the federal government. And then again, when you look internationally, we are the only agency that has the authority to collect this, this U.S. data, energy data. So you've been on the job for a while now. Um, you've gotten your arms around EIA and what it does and all the different data and, and models that are that are under your tent, which is a lot. And it's also time to look ahead to next year. We're recording this ahead of the holidays, ahead of the break. I wonder if you could just start by talking about some of your priority areas for EIA as you think about the year ahead. Sure. So I have a number of priorities for, for the agency, and I'll, I'll just step through those one by one. The first one is to modernize our IT infrastructure. Um, so we're in the process of building a brand new data center. There's also a longer term move to the cloud where we can house all of our data and analysis. And in parallel with basically moving to all of this new hardware infrastructure, we're trying to fundamentally rethink our data architecture. If you go to the EIA website right now, we have a variety of products and, and different data streams but they're often isolated. So you go to a product page, you'll see often a PDF and a spreadsheet, and there's not much of a linkage between the products and unless you access our API, that is one way to do it. But what we wanna be able to do is take all of the, essentially the formatted data that we have and put it into a relational data database. And then on top of that, on top of that database would sit a software layer where we can build tools and dashboards, and it would allow us to bring together data in new and novel ways and to create new ways to visualize, manipulate, and download data. So that's definitely a high priority for us. It's going to take some time, but I think once we complete this, it's, again, going to open up new possibilities for how we can deliver data to our stakeholders. 
The second is I want to strive to make EIA's information more transparent and accessible. I think we already do a pretty good job of this, particularly on the data front. We make all of our data publicly available. But you know, I view transparency as a process or a journey rather than a destination. There's always more we can do to make our products more transparent. So what I was just talking about with having this new data architecture and this ability to build new dashboards, being able to deliver that data in a way that's more accessible for users, I think is a form of transparency because it's making it easier for our stakeholders to use our products and to understand the, the data that we're providing. Another part of that is on the modeling side. We have, we have a variety of models and we're working to open source those models. So we want to make, we do make our models available as a downloadable zip file, but we really want to modernize that practice. We want to use revision control software like GitHub. We want to make our code uh, publicly available via online, publicly accessible repositories. And a prerequisite for that is that we have to choose a software license. So we're in the process of figuring that out. We want to choose a well-recognized uh, license that the community recognizes. And in addition to that, we have to think about governance. You know, we're, we're a federal agency. And so if we put our code online and people suggest a change or make a pull request, we want to make sure that we handle that in a, in a transparent and fair way. And so we're also working on, on a governance document for that. But in the not too distant future, you should be able to access our models via uh, GitHub repositories. So that's another way in which we're trying to increase transparency. Another thing is to provide new insights into community level impacts. You know, the energy system is in transition. Energy markets have been quite volatile, and we really want to understand what the impact is on a more granular geographic scale. If you look at our one of our consumption surveys is the Residential Energy Consumption Survey, or RECS, and for the first time, we were actually able to expand that survey to all 50 states, which was a big step forward. And we're now thinking about ways in which we can take those 50 state results and then go even further again to look at the impacts of high energy prices or uh, changes in energy infrastructure at that more granular uh, community scale. So that granular level, would that be at the state level or at the county or local level? Going uh, further than the state level. So it might be, for example, at the, at the county level. And then the final priority is really to expand our energy modeling capabilities to be able to examine a wider range of future scenarios. And given my experience as an energy systems modeler, this is something that's that's uh, near and dear to my heart. And that's something I'm happy to, we have plans ranging from the next annual energy outlook, which will be released uh, in spring of 2023, through you know the next several years, and I'd be happy to elaborate more on on some of those plans as, as well. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to discuss on the longer term energy models, and I'm curious to see how you've been adjusting those. Yeah, so you mentioned some of the the dual role that you have in providing short term data versus the longer term data and, and modeling and analysis. And I want to dig into that a little bit. So EIA has many different outputs and provides a lot of critical data and reports for different audiences. So I wonder if you could just tell us. How do you think about the value of short-term market analysis that EIA does versus the longer-term modeling? And what are the challenges associated with doing both? 
Um, and maybe you can talk about what are your priorities in each area? Sure. Well, I think, I mean, both the short-term and the long-term analysis are very important. I can start with the short-term. You know, much of, much of our short-term analysis is focused on uh, oil and natural gas. So, for example, we produce the weekly petroleum supply report and then the natural gas weekly supply report. And those are, those are very important. Again, as the names imply, they're released on a weekly basis. And, you know, those markets can move pretty quickly. And so we actually have surveys in the field on a weekly basis where we're trying to keep an eye on what's going on within the industry. And when we release that data on uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays, they can actually move markets when those numbers are released. So they are very important and they're watched very carefully. I, I think the challenge with those particular products is making sure that we have the we're asking the right questions on the survey. You know, the industry is is changing and we want to make sure we keep pace with those changes and that we're providing the most accurate information we can. The other uh, short-term product that's worth highlighting is our short-term energy outlook, which projects, it's actually a forecast. So with the annual energy out, which is outlook, which is long-term, we're very careful to say that it's a set of projections, not a forecast. But with our short-term energy outlook, we say it is a forecast over the next uh, roughly year and a half. The time frame kind of varies depending on where we are in the year. So for example, beginning in January, uh, the projection will be out through the end of 2024. Right now, it's through the end of, of next year. And that provides a lot of critical information on both domestic and uh, domestic pricing, resource availability, and demand, and also touches on some of the international aspects. And again, given the volatility we've seen in markets, that report is, is very carefully watched. In the longer term, we have the annual energy outlook, which is largely focused on domestic energy issues, and then the international energy outlook, which uh, uses a different modeling framework and is geared towards looking at more global uh, energy issues. And both are both include a set of projections out through 2050. And, and those are really important from a planning perspective. So for example, with the, with the AEO, the annual energy outlook, for the first time in 2023, uh, we're going to be including the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. We haven't yet released any analysis of, of that legislation, but that will be embedded in our AEO. And I think it's important to understand when we have, you know, for example, large pieces of legislation like that, we have other market conditions that are changing. How does that change our, our energy and emissions pathways over time? So the AEO and the IEO are really important from a more of a planning perspective. Yeah, maybe you can expand on that a little bit. So when you think about the energy annual energy outlook or the AEO, I mean, this is the way that EIA tracks longer-term structural changes, right? And as an energy systems modeler, this is probably close to your heart. I wonder if you could just share a little bit about some of the changes that you have in mind. So you mentioned you're going to model IRA. That's obviously a big deal for system evolution in the United States. Can you talk more broadly about how you are thinking about modeling different scenarios, trying to capture all the different variables yeah, let's start there. Absolutely. So when thinking about the annual energy outlook, first I'll say that I'm a, I've am ai been a consumer of the AEO for a long time as an energy systems modeler. I had 
thought a lot about it prior to uh, assuming my my current role. And so I had a lot of ideas coming into the job about ways in which we might be able to improve the, the AEO. So I'll just outline a few things that we're planning for uh, this, this next AEO. So as we've already discussed, the IRA is the law of the land. And so it will be part of our reference case because it's considered current laws and regulations. Now we will be including along with the release of the AEO, there's going to be an issues and focus that really tries to look at what the effect of the IRA itself is on, on our projections. And then we look at some sensitivity cases, given some of the uncertainty around what the impact of some of the IRA provisions will be. So, so we're going to have the IRA carry through the entire, all of the cases that we run, in the 2023 AEO. And then there'll be the separate issues and focus that specifically looks at the reference case compared to an equivalent reference case without the, the IRA. Now, there's some broader changes that I think are important that we're also going to be exploring within the AEO for, for this year. The first is I think it's really important to increase the range of results to better capture real-world possibilities. So as an example, if we're looking at a high and low oil price case, we want to make sure that those high and low assumptions really capture as much of the range as we think is, is plausible. And the other thing is we want to start looking at combination cases, and that's something we're planning on for this AEO. If you think about the structure of the cases, you have the reference case. And then every other side case is basically a singular perturbation off of that reference case. The real world is more complicated than that, right? Multiple things happen differently than we expect. And so we want to be able to model some of those scenarios. So, so what we're tentatively planning on is looking at a combination of our macro cases where we, we have high and low macroeconomic growth with high and low renewables costs. And what I like about this is the high and low macro cases are a demand side perturbation. Right? If you have high macro growth, you're going to have higher end use demands and that's going to that's going to increase energy consumption and then vice versa, right? If we have low macro growth, lower uh, lower demand, lower energy consumption and supply. And then the low and high renewables costs are a supply side perturbation that can change the, the energy mix. And so we'll see what happens when we combine the various uh, cases together in these combinations. So for example, high macro growth, low renewables costs, you know, what happens? So that's the first thing, increase the range of results that we present. The second is we wanna focus on the range of results and communicate the uncertainty if you look at the AEO from this past year, 2022, and you look at the figures that appear, about three quarters of those figures focus exclusively on the reference case. Now, now we go through a lot of trouble to say that the reference case is not a forecast, it's a projection, but we present it in a way that makes it look like a forecast and people interpret it as a forecast. And so what we want to do is be very careful that when we're presenting the results, we're showing the range that includes all of the additional cases that we're, that we're running. So we can put, we, we can show a cone of uncertainty and put those reference case results in, in a broader context to emphasize the uncertainty that we don't, you know, we have a sophisticated model, 
but it's not a crystal ball and there's uncertainty around those estimates. And the third thing is that we I've instructed our modelers to really focus on the narrative. You know, as a modeler, it's very important to contextualize the results. There's there's this really, really important step in modeling where you generate results, but you have to interpret those results in light of real world complexities and, and then tell the reader what you think the key insights are, you know, based on this you know, th this model of the world, what do we think it really is telling us about what could happen in the real world? And the only way to do that is to write about it. And so I think the narrative associated with the annual energy outlook is, is really important. So those are three things we're going to be working on for this next AEO. Yeah, I think one of my colleagues suggested that you should print up a shirt that says EIA. It's a projection, not a forecast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So if you start some of the alternative scenarios, maybe it will help you in that regard. Can we talk a little bit about assumptions? I think that EIA has been criticized in the past for being a little bit too conservative in its longer-term models like the AEO about, for example, renewable energy costs coming down or the pace of adoption. How do you respond to that? I think that's a fair criticism and it's a critique that I had as well. And I think basically my read on it is, is what happened is there was a period of time where solar and wind were decreasing costs very rapidly. And the input assumptions to that were feeding the National Energy Modeling System, or NEMS, which is the model used to produce AEO, were basically not keeping pace. And this is something where modelers have actually had to reorient themselves. There was a long period of time where modelers, you know, they would update their the input assumptions, you know, every few years. I mean, things didn't change that much. And so that was... A, you know, in the past, that was a reasonable approach. And, and I think one of the things that not just EIA, but many modeling teams have learned is that you can't do that anymore, that you really, really have to track these technology costs carefully. And they can change not only on an annual basis, but on a quarterly basis. And my sense is that EIA has caught up in the last few years, that their projections have been, I would say, more in line with you know, projections produced by other organizations. But, you know, part of the challenge is once these ideas set in, like the fact that the costs are too conservative, it, it becomes very hard to overcome that critique. And so one of the things I'd like to do is focus on a retrospective report. We do produce a retrospective report. It's got tons of statistics in it. And it basically compares our reference case results from the past with the actual realized outcomes and I think that there are ways in which we can restructure that report to better analyze and communicate the updates we've made to show that we're more, I think, in line with you know, expected renewables costs. And I can just say on a personal level that since I've joined, I have definitely had this issue you know, on the front burner. And I've talked with the modelers multiple times about ensuring that our costs for both renewables and batteries are accurate and up to date. Yeah, to be fair, I think that a lot of people are still playing catch up with how quickly these markets evolve. And we've seen dramatic drops in prices for battery costs, for example, over the years. So yeah, it's certainly not alone in that regard and having to adjust its expectations, right? We all do. Yep. But I think it's important we, you know, that we learn we learn the lesson and and make sure that moving forward we do a good job of capturing those changes. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about some of the short term priorities and, and market issues you're looking at. So when you think about global energy markets over the next year, I mean, we're coming off an incredibly volatile and challenging time in global energy markets for 
electricity, natural gas, and oil and petroleum products. What are some of the critical issues in, in global energy markets that EIA is going to be looking at this year, whether that's LNG or global oil markets or, or power sector issues? Sure. I guess I can start with uh, natural gas. You know, it's very much an evolving market. We've moved from a situation where we started exporting liquefied natural gas in 2016 from the United States. We are now the largest exporter in the world. So that has happened incredibly fast. And uh, we're in this period of, you know, for a long time, natural gas was, you know, Henry Hub prices were quite low. And we've been in this period of sustained higher prices. And we think that that's driven by a couple factors. One is because of these high export levels, it's placed upward pressure on on domestic prices. And we could actually see, if if you look over the summer, there was the closure of this Freeport LNG export terminal. And uh, all of a sudden, it, it happened suddenly. And all of a sudden, there was this product that was supposed to be exported and instead was available domestically, our prices dropped. You could see European prices rise uh, because they no longer had access to that LNG from the US. It was about 20% of our total export capacity. So you're starting to see these regional linkages where, where you didn't before, again, because of this increased exports. The other thing that I think is quite fascinating with respect to natural gas is we're seeing this pretty precipitous decline in coal consumption for electricity generation. Historically, there's been this trade-off between coal and natural gas. So if natural gas prices would go high, you could ramp up coal to kind of fill that thermal gap. And with the retirement of a lot of coal capacity, the demand for natural gas in the electric sector has become quite inelastic. So you don't really see that price responsiveness anymore. Even if gas prices spike, we're not seeing reductions in uh, demand within the the electric sector. So there's a lot of interesting things going on with respect to natural gas. With regard to the electric sector and renewables, we do see in the longer term that you know we we expect to see pretty high deployments of renewables, and we're already starting to see the effects where renewable generation is is eating into uh, natural gas generation. So it's, it's it's effectively saving us on natural gas consumption in the electric sector. So you've kind of had this rapid drop in coal that's made the demand for natural gas inelastic in the short term. But over time, as renewables grow uh, year over year, we expect to see that demand for natural gas decline somewhat. Uh, Joe, let me ask a question about the global oil market. In the oil market, there's something called the adjustment factor which is what market analysts use to balance supply and demand numbers in any given report, whether it's a weekly report or a monthly assessment. It's kind of a way to balance the ledger, so to speak. All market analysts have to deal with this adjustment factor. It grows or shrinks over time, depending on where we are in the market, lots of variables. But that adjustment factor has been pretty big in recent months. Often it's been more than a million barrels a day, which is no small number. This is the so-called missing barrels number. You tweeted something really interesting about this uh, a while back. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about what this is. What is the explanation for the adjustment factor and how should we interpret this this big number? So when, when talking about the adjustment factor, I think it's probably best to start with the balance equation. What we're trying to do at EIA, both in our our weekly report as well as our, our monthly report, is to understand the balance between the supply 
of petroleum and disposition. So supply is basically the amount that we're either producing from the field, importing, or that we are taking from storage. Disposition, which is the other side of that balance equation, is where that crude oil is going. It can be sent to a refinery. So we have refinery inputs. It can be exported or it can go back into storage as a, as a stock build. And in the perfect world, if we were able to collect perfect data, those two sides, supply and disposition, would perfectly balance. And in that case, our adjustment factor would be zero. Of course, it's not perfect. We have two fundamental products here. We have the, the weekly petroleum supply report and there we're surveying a subset of the industry. And so because of that, the numbers are more noisy and more variable. And then we have our petroleum supply monthly, which is basically a census of the industry that we do on a monthly basis. And those numbers will tend to be more accurate. Now, the adjustment factor plays into both sets of numbers, the weekly and the monthly. But if the adjustment numbers are off in the monthly, we get more concerned about it because that's our our more accurate view of, of the petroleum industry. So back to the balance equation. If supply is greater than disposition, then that would be a negative adjustment. If supply is less than disposition, that's going to be a positive adjustment. Right? And that, that latter condition is, is what we're seeing, that supply, when we add it up, is less than disposition. And that's considered a state of undersupply. So there's not, we're somehow we're not seeing enough supply compared to disposition. Now, again, the data is imperfect, right? And so we don't really ever expect the adjustment to be to be zero, but it shouldn't be biased, right? We we would expect that sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. And if we calculate calculate the average over a sufficient period of time, it should average out to zero. But the problem is that that's not what's happening, that we're in this condition, again, of undersupply. And so if you look at the monthly results, which again, we consider to be the more accurate, going back to sort of you know around 2008, you can see that that adjustment number is biased positive and that it's been increasing over time. And so it implies that there's something going on that we're not able to capture in the data that we're collecting. And, and we have some leads. So first of all, this has been, this missing barrels problem has been something we've been keeping an eye on for a long time. But one thing I would emphasize is, again, because we expect it to be variable, you can't just look at one month and go, oh, that, that's, that's a high adjustment. Let's immediately do something about it, right? You've got to observe the data over a period of time to really identify that there's an issue. So our analysts look at this extremely carefully all the time, and it's getting to the point where we recognize that there's definitely an issue. And so I've asked them to basically redouble their efforts and to come up with a plan within 90 days in order to figure out what's going on with this adjustment number. Thank you for all that detail. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit complicated, but it is, it's important. Joe, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the different mandates of EIA and how it delivers information and data and puts it in the hands of different audiences. Are the expectations of people in the marketplace different now for models and how they interact with them? And how does EIA evolve 
to meet those demands? Yeah, I think again, one of the one of my priorities is to to increase transparency, and, and I think that means that it, in in a way, it places greater demands on on modelers. So, you know, we have to write good code. We have to use modern language languages and modern software development practices, and I think we have to document the code, you know, and be responsive to uh, feedback in a way that hasn't been true historically. I, I think for a long time it was, you know, there's some really smart people at EIA and, and elsewhere. I mean, I, you know, being a member of the energy modeling community for a long time, I, I see this evolution. It's not just EIA, but I think for a long time, there's some super smart folks who have like a really sophisticated model and they're going to tell us, you know, how the world is going to change. And I think we're evolving away from that model. And I think part of it just has to do with the fact that the system is under transition. We're talking about really large pieces of policy, major transfers of wealth, significant reconfiguration of the, the global energy system. And I think that calls for greater transparency, in part because nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. There's there's a lot of uncertainty. And, and I think that's something that that we have to meet head on. And, and the two ways that I know how to do that is to make the modeling more transparent, to document assumptions, to make the code open. So to essentially acknowledge like, hey, I'm not perfect. This is the way I think about things. Here it is. You know, if you have a different view, go ahead and do what you want with it. And, and then the second way is to formally quantify that uncertainty to say that, look, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but here's a range of outcomes depending on, on how things unfold. So I think our modelers have to be prepared to grapple with those issues. Let me ask another question about the, the mandate and the mission of EIA. So the data is used by all kinds of people, industry, analysts, consultants, journalists, students, you name it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how some of the requests from EIA are changing, maybe your engagement with policymakers and the kinds of issues that they're asking for and how you think about that reshaping your priorities for the year to come and beyond. Yeah, when I was talking about the need to upgrade our IT infrastructure and in, in working on this new data architecture, I had mentioned how a lot of our data historically has been siloed. So, you know, if you're thinking about the you know the the electric sector okay if you're if you're thinking about the residential sector over here if you're thinking about petroleum you go over there and again i i i think that there's a growing demand for being able to take cross-cutting views of the the energy system so for example i might want to know what's happening with renewables in not only utility scale renewables but what's happening with distributed renewables, you know, rooftop solar, for example. And can I look at that data within the same the same dashboard? Could we group clean energy technologies in a way where we, you know, they're viewable through the same data portal that it's not, you know, a set of uh, separate, separate products? I, I would say that users are asking us sort of the traditional questions, right? So inquiries about primary energy supply uh, you know, crude oil production, you know, refined products, exports, you know, the the market for LNG, all of that is is definitely there. And, and I think with a lot of talk about the energy transition, there's also a lot of interest in, and again, some of these more cross-cutting views of, of the energy system. And the idea of reconfiguring 
in reimagining our data architecture is to be able to have the flexibility to provide the data in the way that users want to see it. Well, Joe, thank you so much. This was really great. It's uh, it's really good to get your insights on the mission and the path ahead for the EIA. It's an exciting time for global energy and also around the world. And this institution plays such an important role. So thank you very much for being with us and, and thanks for your service. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate it. It was uh, my honor to be able to join you. Thanks to Joe and Ben for that discussion. I know many of our listeners use the EIA on a regular basis, so let us know what you think as these changes start to appear over the year. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates from the program and from the CSIS Energy team, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>